Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let me start. My self-esteem is quite low. Wang Zhenzhen and her brother live in Shenzhen, a giant city on China's southern coast, right next to Hong Kong. We agree to meet in the private room of a tea house, tucked away inside a gleaming skyscraper of glass and steel. Well into the evening, the sister and brother talk of a dark period in China's history, a time before they were born, but that still marks their family today. As their story unfolds, every now and then an attendant comes in to refill our pot of Fujini's tea. In truth, the tea is barely touched, for all our minds are far away, in their parents' cement-floored village home, hundreds of miles to the north. Wang Zhenzhen was born in 1985. Two decades before that, her father was accused of a terrible crime while working as a young schoolteacher, a crime that he insists he didn't commit. Ever since, he has devoted his life to trying to clear his name. We're investigating Wang Kung-Fu's case. It bears all the hallmarks of a revolutionary-era political purge. Indeed, as we'll find out, all the main witnesses cited by prosecutors later say he'd been framed. But to date, no court has been willing to reopen the case. This week on Drum Tower, we're asking, why is today's China unable or unwilling to revisit events of the Cultural Revolution, which took place six decades ago? And where does that leave Teacher Wang's family? I'm David Rennie, The Economist's Beijing bureau chief. And this is Drum Tower from The Economist. A few weeks ago, I travelled to Shishu in Jiangxi province. That's the home village of Wang Lashu, which means teacher Wang. When I arrive, it's a cold day, not quite spring. Fresh rain has filled the cement-lined street that runs past the Wang's two-storey home. Low grey clouds hang over a watery landscape of fish ponds and fields. They almost hide the forested green hills beyond. The air smells of wood smoke and damp. An only child from an army family, Wang Kung Fu was born to serve his country. Serious and bookish, as a teacher in his early 20s, he brought his reverence for Chinese classical culture to his work at a rural primary school. In his spare time, he encouraged the children to exercise and learn to swim. Teacher Wang grew up the son of a lieutenant colonel in the army. 
that when he was seven years old, the army in which his father served, the army of the nationalist Kuomintang, lost the Chinese Civil War, defeated by the Red Army of Mao Zedong. Now Chairman Mao ruled China, which meant Wang and his family were on the wrong side. Now they were counter-revolutionary enemies. Come to think of it, my grandparents suffered a lot. They were tortured. They lost everything. Xu Jian is Zhen Zhen's brother. When I meet him in Shenzhen, he's dressed like millions of the city's office workers in a white shirt and dark trousers. He's more reserved than his sister. The private room in the tea house where I sit with the Wang siblings, it's elegant and blandly anonymous. There's a long hardwood table, big windows, overlooking the courtyard garden of a business hotel. It all makes a jarring contrast with the Spartan village home where the brother and sister grew up and where I had just been hours earlier. In that comfortable modern room, Xu Jian and his sister recall a very different China. The China of the Cultural Revolution. That was a deadly decade of purges and bloodletting, all deliberately unleashed by Chairman Mao in 1966 as a way to outflank his critics in the party elite. Revolutionary violence reached their corner of Jiangxi province early. The area was known for its political fervour and trouble swiftly found Teacher Wang's family. Wang Zhenzhen tells me family stories about how her grandparents were persecuted. What they did was absolutely disgusting. I hope you don't feel ill hearing this. They were made to eat their own shit. They were forced to work in the dead of winter, wearing very few clothes. In all, unknown millions died. Centuries-old temples, artworks and libraries were destroyed. The Cultural Revolution would last 10 years, ending only with Mao's death in 1976. Back at the start of the Cultural Revolution, in 1966, when Wang was teaching at the primary school, he was confronted one day by a revolutionary enforcer, the head of the local socialist education work group and a few police officers. Teacher Wang was taken away. Looking back, years later, Wang told a video journalist from a Chinese newspaper, the Xiaoxiang Morning Herald, how defenseless he had felt when the police entered his office. Back then, my family background was bad so they could do whatever they wanted to me. Police told him that they were looking into his suspicious behaviour with female students. And in court, he was told that a dozen students had accused him of rape and sexual harassment. Prosecutors said his crimes had begun two years earlier, when the pupils were 12 or 13 years old. Wang told the Chinese newspaper... That was when I was cast out of society. I felt I was dragged out of the world. It was when the case came to trial that I found out, oh, 
I'm being accused of rape. I didn't think much of it. I trusted my students and I believed they wouldn't make anything up about me. But his confidence that a trial would arrive at the truth was a misreading of those times. While I talk to Teacher Wang's oldest daughter, my colleague from The Economist's Beijing Bureau begins to read through legal files kept in Teacher Wang's village home. One is an investigation report written by one of Wang's fellow teachers that was used at his revolutionary trial in 1966. Chillingly and revealingly, the report opens not with Teacher Wang's alleged crime, but with his family background. It describes him as a counter-revolutionary. It calls him deeply influenced by his father, the former Guomindang army officer. The report accuses him of questioning Chairman Mao's policies and of reading classical literature. It says that he's been teaching students to be spies. Only after reciting those political crimes does the document accuse him of raping pupils, citing denunciations gathered by teachers in his school. Teacher Wang told video journalists from the Xiaoxiang newspaper decades later that the court documents contained no formal evidence. He said, at least you should have affidavits obtained from the victims. There should be medical examinations along with the doctor's signature. But there were no examinations and no affidavits from the victims themselves. There was nothing in their own words. How could you determine that there was rape? But the judge's conclusion was that Wang had raped two of his students and harassed ten others. He was sentenced to ten years forced labour. Teacher Wang spent nine years in a Laogai Nongchang, a reform through labour farm. The name sounds almost benign, but this was a Chinese version of the Gulag. Inmates were subjected to hard labour, hunger and constant political indoctrination designed to re-educate them into loyal, biddable followers of the party. Millions were sent to such camps in the Mao era, but Teacher Wang began an unusually lonely journey after his release in 1975. He emerged, still insisting that he was innocent and asking to clear his name. A year after his release, Teacher Wang was introduced to his wife, Zhou Sanying. Villagers felt that they made a good match because Zhou was also a class enemy, the daughter of a landlord. Worse still, her father fled to Hong Kong, which was then a British colony, as did millions of others. They were called traitors, and their families still in the mainland suffered for it. She never saw her father again. When I meet Mrs. Zhou in her little village, Shishu, she's cooking lunch for my researcher and me on a single burner in an iron wok. She's preparing an embarrassing number of dishes because we know how poor she is. But hospitality is a powerful tradition. Her home is unheated and she's wearing a thick padded coat and a purple knitted hat against the bone-chilling damp. She tells me 
about how Teacher Wang's parents had suffered, leaving him penniless when they married in 1977. He had no money, nothing other than four walls. Three days after I married Wang, I had to buy bows and chopsticks because there was nothing in his family home. When he was taken to the labor camp, his parents suffered a lot. In winter, the snow was thick. The icicles hung from the roof's eaves. The parents were hung and beaten. They were made to hand over all their things. They had nothing left. So they went and borrowed things from others. The family borrowed three pair of earrings and nine silver coins and handed all of them in. His parents barely had clothes to wear. Their clothes were tatty, their bedsheets were torn, everything was taken. All the farm animals, pigs, cows, all taken. She tells me that in village culture, only children, like her husband, are especially vulnerable. They have no brothers to defend them or to exact revenge on persecutors. So it is striking that the primary school in his home village employed him as a substitute teacher after his release, entrusting him with young pupils once again. As a sub, he made only a tenth the salary of a regular teacher. Long after his retirement, his work is still praised. As lunch is served, a local official joins us, eager to talk about welfare payments the government offered teacher Wang last year, and to keep an eye on the foreign reporter. Though the village official is a bit distracted by defending his food from the family's ginger cat, he proudly recalls his own school days as teacher Wang's pupil. Wang was eventually given prizes for his teaching, but he declined offers of promotion until his name could be cleared, and he began that campaign early. After Mao's death in 1976, new leaders of the Communist Party officially declared the Cultural Revolution a gross error that had brought disaster to the country, although they added that Mao's achievements outweighed his mistakes. China was encouraged to move on, to focus on economic development. Teacher Wang, even though he was free, couldn't move on from the fact that officially he was a convicted rapist, a crime he swore he didn't commit. Teacher Wang wanted to clear his name. It became the central cause of his life. Wang would write and rewrite appeals day after day, sending them to local prosecutors, law courts and officials, even to national leaders. His thinking was that if he strengthened the wording of a sentence here or there, it might help. Every day he woke up at 2 or 3 in the morning to write appeals. I would ask him, why do you get up so early? He'd say, it's because his mind is clearer in the morning, and during the day he has to work. His commitment to trying to clear his name took a toll on his relationship with his children. My father strikes you as someone cold but he's warm-hearted. My mom jokes that he's like a thermos flask. Others may be willing to be his friend, but he can't open up to them. He's trapped by what happened to him. Teacher Wang's emotions come out in his journals. In a diary entry, he describes one of his many visits to the local county court to ask about his appeal. The team 
from the Xiaoxiang Morning Herald, recorded him reading it aloud. He reads, After breakfast at the reception restaurant, I ran into an old middle school student at Lianhua Middle School. He's now a teaching fellow at the County Teaching and Research Institute. I told him about what I was dealing with, and he was sympathetic. They're all living well, but me, there's only pain, pain, pain. I haven't done anything wrong, but I'm not tolerated by society. Every time I encounter someone from the past, I feel as if I'm being ripped apart. His children remember the deep poverty that came with their father's status as a former prisoner on a low salary, paying for a series of lawyers. In the dead of winter, rainy days are especially cold. The soles of our shoes were so worn, they would soak up all the water. I remember going to school with icy cold feet. I also remember eating rotten veg because we were farming on the state's land and had to pay rent in the form of crops. So after we turned that in, there wasn't much left. Xu Jian, her brother, also remembers hunger from his childhood. When we were really desperate, we'd use castor sugar to mix with rice. But we had very little, so we were careful in how we used it. Sometimes there were outbreaks of swine fever. Most people would just bury the sick pigs whole. But my grandma would buy a little bit of the pig and fry the meat to eat. Life was really, really poor. We tried to borrow just a tiny bit of money from other people, but no one would help us. The burden of parenting and running the household was left to his wife. We had four children. All of them went to school. They all managed to go to high school or university. I had to sell vegetables for a living. My husband didn't have time for this. He was solely focused on his appeals. I took care of all the housework. I said to myself, I need to do this. I can do this. I saved every penny. When we killed a pig, we didn't eat any. We'd sell the meat to pay back debt. And Mrs. Zhou still stands by him. As she talks to me in the kitchen of her village home, I see a plain wooden dresser being used as a sort of altar bearing family photographs. A stern young man in a greatcoat stares out from one. It's the grandfather whose Guomindang army career unleashed such disasters on the family. The picture was removed from the house for some years by neighbours and only returned after the Cultural Revolution. Mrs. Joe's accent is strong. It's hard to follow. So hours later, after riding a taxi out of the village and then a high-speed train to Shenzhen, I played the tape of my interview with her to her youngest children, Sujian and Zhenzhen. Her voice fills the hushed tea house room. As they translate their mother's words into standard Mandarin, you can see a mix of emotions playing on their faces. Sadness, smiles of familiarity, occasional fond laughter at her earthy turns of phrase. All the journalists asked me, he has it so hard. Why do you stick by him? Once I've made my promise, I will follow through. Now that I've married him, I will follow him to the end, even if it means begging on the streets. Xu Jian admits to doubts about his father's quest. Not because he doesn't believe his father is innocent, 
but because he thinks the task may be beyond anyone. Of course I supported my dad. This was his wish. He was born in a difficult time. It was painful to be accused of crimes he did not commit. And I understand that. From my perspective, I didn't support him because I believed he would succeed, but out of duty. I felt like if I stood in his way, it would really hurt him. When he was in a relatively good mood, I'd have to remind him, look, it's a historical incident, you know? It's not as clean-cut as you hit me or I hit you, and there's some readily available proof. It's not like that. That reference to a historical incident nods to a truth larger than one man's legal dispute. China is a country where history belongs to the Communist Party and where challenging approved accounts of the past can be a crime. Yet there was a period after the end of the Cultural Revolution when the party's leaders, including Deng Xiaoping, a man purged three times under Mao, tolerated some limited criticism of Maoist excesses. Economic reformers like Deng They weren't moved by pity for individual rights when they overturned some verdicts or when they allowed writers and filmmakers to explore their own sufferings from those dark times. This was politics. Those reformers were in a continuing struggle with Maoist diehards. In this high-stakes moment of political change, Teacher Wang sensed a chance to reach out to one group who might be able to save him. The former students, whom prosecutors said, had accused him of rape and assault. He wrote letters to these former students and waited for their replies. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. At the very end of the late 1970s, Teacher Wang took a risk. He wrote letters to his former female students, asking them about the case. Their replies are still neatly filed in a box in Teacher Wang's house. There are letters and affidavits. All of them are handwritten, and the paper used is very thin. It's yellowing now. Teacher Wang has underlined key phrases with a red pen. In the letters, some of the students say they never knew why he suddenly vanished from school. One of them tells him she didn't even know that she had supposedly accused him of rape. She asks him to resolve the case because her own reputation is at stake. Other students say that they were coached by teachers at the time to accuse him. In all, Teacher Wang 
hears back from 10 out of his 12 original accusers, including both peoples that he was convicted of raping. All of them say that he's innocent. By any legal standards, including China's own, there was enough evidence for a retrial. And teacher Wang came agonisingly close to reopening his case in 1980. As so often in China, it involved connections. He reached out to a relative who'd served in the army with a top party leader, and she agreed to help. The well-connected relative walked into the local county court and asked to speak to someone in charge, and it worked. A judge wrote a report asking for a review. The family has seen the review. They've never been allowed to take a copy, but they have notes. Wang Zhenzhen describes what it found. That 1980s review calls her father's trial a classic case concocted during the socialist education movement, she tells me. But then came a heavy blow. Teacher Wang's daughter, Zhen Zhen, explains that a county-level judge privately expressed concerns that her father would seek financial compensation. My dad said, I don't want compensation. I don't need my job back. I just want my name cleared. And the judge responsible said, really, is that all you want? My dad said, yes. Then the next day, when my dad went to sign his name, the judge retracted the deal. The judge said, if you signed, saying you only want your name cleared and nothing else, what would others think? They think we didn't compensate you because we're mean with money. Then, a higher court rejected the new evidence from the county-level review and accused teacher Wang of colluding with witnesses as he gathered their statements. Even after that refusal, teacher Wang wouldn't give up. In 1991, he secured some legal aid and a new lawyer. His lawyer went to Lianhua County Court. Teacher Wang's daughter remembers the lawyer's reaction when he saw how thick the file was. When the lawyer first went in, he thought, oh no, this must be the pile of evidence they have. But when he opened the file, he realized almost all of it was my dad's letters. The original evidence and ruling was just a few sheets of paper. The rest were all letters my dad had sent about the case. But still, he could not secure a retrial. Why was it so hard? One reason is simple. With millions of victims of revolutionary purges and injustices still alive in China, it's just trouble for the authorities to revisit these cases and potentially costly. It's so much more convenient to bury them. By the time that Wang stopped work as a teacher, his legal options seemed very limited. But then... When he was in his 70s, he encountered one last hope. And this time, it arose by chance. A journalist from the provincial television station was doing a story about his ancestral home in Shisha village. Villagers directed the journalist to retired teacher Wang, their best educated neighbour. The journalist learned about Wang's many appeals and he couldn't forget the story. In 2016 he returned to Wang's village 
to make a two-part news report about Wang's struggle for justice. If the courts were failing him, this moment, this news crew felt like Teacher Wang's final shot at clearing his name. And to be sure, that Chinese journalist was taking a risk in reporting the case. And those risks, they were growing. Soon after taking office in 2012, today's party chief, Xi Jinping, gave speeches warning that the party's authority will be damaged if it allows the achievements of the Mao era to be negated by too much criticism. Now, scholars, Chinese journalists or filmmakers who dwell on the horrors of the Cultural Revolution and other revolutionary crimes, they risk being accused of historical nihilism. But Wang put his trust in the TV crew. For his news report, the Jiangxi TV journalist organised the first meeting in 50 years between Teacher Wang and Yin Fuzhen, one of the two pupils he was convicted of raping. The scene that was broadcast is remarkable to watch. They meet on a pathway by the side of a building. A motorbike scoots by. They shake hands and Mrs Yin starts to cry. Then they don't let go of each other's hands. Mrs Yin is an old woman herself now. But she says, Teacher Wang, there was nothing between us, it's all a lie. He says he was so young, right? I was 12, she says. And he tells her he doesn't blame her. Mrs Yin says, you never asked us to help you. And her teacher explains, I didn't dare to meet you. The court would say that if I reached out, I'm colluding with you, so I never dared to come. And they remember the day that he was taken, the day that the students realised he was gone. Mrs Yin says, when we came to class, there was a substitute teacher. We were very upset. We liked you as a teacher. You were always good to us. But even in this moment, this really intense emotional scene, Teacher Wang is still diffident. Mrs Yin at the end invites him to visit her home and meet her family. And he says, I'll come over when I've cleared my name. Or, as he puts it in the video, I'll come over when I'm fully human again. Since that Chinese journalist film of Teacher Wang ran on the main evening news in Jiangxi, several news outlets took up Teacher Wang's cause. Wang's family is still grateful to that filmmaker. After four lonely decades of writing letters from his village home, the attention from these journalists brings new allies. Several of Teacher Wang's former students from 1966 see the news reports and they begin gathering evidence to help him. Part of that help involves keeping the case in the public eye. I travel to the county town Lianhua, where Teacher Wang was arrested, and I meet one of those former pupils. He's now a 71-year-old retired forestry worker. The ex-student, he knows Yin Fujian, the classmate whose reunion with Teacher Wang was filmed by the TV crew. He calls her, and he asks about bringing a foreign journalist for an interview. Then he takes me by taxi to her home. The meeting is brief, and it's intense. 
Mrs. Yin has been interviewed by lawyers and Chinese reporters many times. And when her former classmate pushes open the steel gates to her home, she greets him. But she says her adult son has told her to stop talking to the press. And then she paces the courtyard. She's divided by a sense of duty to her own family, but also to teacher Wang. It seems important to me to hear from a supposed accuser firsthand, so I'm relieved when finally she decides to speak. Mrs Yin is clear. She says she never signed any document accusing teacher Wang of rape. We asked, did a teacher talk to you or make you sign anything? No, there's none of that, she said. I never signed my name. She agrees to have those words used in this podcast, but it's clear she is tired of talking about this case. And as we leave, her former classmate explains that female students, they worry that even being named in a rape case is somehow going to be seen as shameful and will trigger gossip from neighbours. For all the political risks that people are taking remembering this dark period, the growing of public attention does start to have an effect. Some well-known lawyers take up Teacher Wang's cause, and after years of the case going nowhere, his appeals start rising again, up to the highest levels of China's legal system. But now it's a race against time. In his village in Jiangxi, Teacher Wang's health begins failing as he nears his 80th birthday. Eventually, in 2021, his appeals reach China's highest prosecutor's office, the Supreme People's Procuratorate. They're the gatekeepers to this case. They're charged with deciding whether that original prosecution should stand or be revisited. And then finally, in January 2022, comes a blow that seems to snuff out all hope. The prosecutors say there's no new evidence that they can accept. And they note that Teacher Wang, back in 1966, confessed to some charges because he agreed back then that he did take pupils for swimming lessons. Teacher Wang's son, Xu Jian, sees this verdict as proof of his father's lack of power and influence. To be perfectly honest, we were heartbroken when his case was dismissed by the Supreme People's Procuratorate. Think about it. My dad's words carry very little weight. He's from the bottom of society. He's a nobody. Back in her village home, Teacher Wang's wife says she doesn't begrudge his 44-year-long campaign. She says, I have to support her. It's such an unjust case. In late October 2022, Teacher Wang dies at the age of 80. He never cleared his name. Maybe he wouldn't have died like that. Even down to the last minute of his passing, he was still hung up on this. It's heartbreaking. Teacher Wang was one of a dwindling number of eyewitnesses to the Cultural Revolution. And his death? It's a boost 
to the Communist Party's campaign of forgetting. There are other survivors of the Cultural Revolution out there. Will any of them have more luck securing official recognition of wrongs done to them? In China today, a period of limited tolerance for investigations into past injustices is ending. Today's party acknowledges tersely that mistakes were made during the Cultural Revolution, but in recent years school textbooks have been rewritten to downplay the purges and frenzies of that time. Many young people are only hazily aware of what happened. But Teacher Wang's children, Xu Jian and Zhen Zhen, are aware. And here's a particular sharp irony. The Wang family's pain has a very specific root cause. Their grandfathers were class enemies on their father and their mother's side. One was a military enemy. The other called a traitor to communism for fleeing to British-ruled Hong Kong. For reasons of modern-day politics, today's communist rulers are on friendly terms with the heirs of that nationalist Kuomintang regime. And as for rich families that fled to Hong Kong, some of their descendants include the most loyal allies the Communist Party has there. They helped to run Hong Kong. Yet those twists and turns in the world of high politics, they're no help at all to the Wang family in their village in Jiangxi. And that's because the cause of their continuing pain, it's not what their grandfathers did many decades ago. Their real error is being unable to forget. Hope is a strange thing. It can be a form of belief, but sometimes it can sound more like a duty. I asked Jen Jen whether she's going to carry on with her father's legal appeals as he asked them to do. She tells me the family still has hopes of clearing his name, but it sounds more like a promise being kept than an expression of confidence. My dad's last wish is that we see this case through, but realistically, we don't know. We will try our best. Maybe it won't happen now, but it will happen someday. He spent his whole life trying to clear his name. How did he manage to persist for so long? I think he felt that as long as society was moving forward, there could be a chance that it will work out for him. And while she and her brother work in Shenzhen, their elderly mother still suffers in the village back home. More than anything, Teacher Wang's widow sounds resigned to an unequal world. Who knew he'd end up like this? With the case unresolved, why did it play out like this? It's because he didn't have any siblings, no relatives, no connections. Everything now relies on connections. If you don't have connections, it doesn't get resolved. The past has followed the family to the southern boomtown of Shenzhen. Teacher Wang's daughter tells me that the impact of her father's suffering remains with her now. My dad struggled with self-esteem too, which I think affected us all. 
Just like him, we feel quite bitter and miserable all the time. So that's what I think has affected me deep into my bones. I don't know how to be happy again. All over the world, 20th century horrors leave legacies of trauma through the second, the third generations. In the China of 2023, the tragedies of the Mao era cannot be addressed squarely because the same ruling party is in charge. And time is on the party's side. The last eyewitnesses are growing old. Soon the Cultural Revolution will be known in China only through history books, and the party writes those. As we prepare to go our separate ways, heading off into the warm Shenzhen night, a last question occurs to me. I ask Teacher Wang's son and daughter, about their own school-aged children, whether they've shared their family's story with this fourth generation. I'd understand if they told me that it's a secret. After all, Teacher Wang's supposed accusers has suffered years of malevolent gossip from neighbours just for being caught up in a case about rape. But Jen Jen is clear. Mine, though, they've heard about it from me, she tells me. Have you advised your children not to talk about this outside the family, I ask? No, she replies. No, I've always told them that Grandpa is a just and kind person, so you can tell it for what it is. I find myself hoping that Teacher Wang knew about his daughter's courage and her loyalty. It didn't suit the authorities to reopen his case, and that broke him. But sometimes, love is its own form of justice. This episode was produced by Alicia Burrell and Barclay Brown. Sound design and mixing was by Nico Rofast and Tingli Lin. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Margaret Howell is the executive producer. Thanks to Lily Hallett, Daniel York Lowe and Faye, and our thanks to the Xiaoxiang Morning Herald. You can read my Chaguan column, which accompanies this podcast, on The Economist's website. If you subscribe already, thank you. If you don't, you can visit economist.com slash drumoffer where you'll find a special introductory rate. And if you have any comments on this episode, please do get in touch. Our email address is drum at economist.com. Thank you for listening to Drum Tower. your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.